The first reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, and it's headed up, The Coming Ruler of God's People. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The second reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 to 20. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a delight to be here this morning with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from the church where I'm a member, which is Orchard Baptist Church in the town of Bicester in Oxfordshire. Uh, they are worshipping this morning and my wife is leading the worship this morning, so it'll be good. And uh, greetings from them. Up until April, I would have also brought you gre greetings from about 90% of the Christians in the country because uh, churches together in England represented about that proportion of Christians. Uh, but I retired from that role in April, so I feel I can't really do that any longer, except as a kind of a relic. Uh, but greetings from uh, the wider Christian family. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 
Well, this Sunday in the church's calendar is the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, it's the last Sunday in the church's year. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, and the whole rhythm of the church's year begins again next Sunday. And until the middle of the last century, it wasn't really recognized as anything other than the last Sunday before Advent. But the then Pope in the 1920s uh, had the idea that this should have a particular resonance around the kingship of Christ. And so uh, quite widely now it is celebrated as the Feast of Christ the King. Not everybody is in favor of it, but I am. And uh, we've taken our readings from the lectionary, both the Old Testament and the epistle. And when we come to follow this sermon with a hymn, a version of Psalm 46. In 2018, and recently appointed as General Secretary of Churches Together in England, I was at Westminster Abbey for the service to celebrate the canonization of Archbishop Oscar Romero, and was close enough to see the script above the altar as I sat up near it. Above the high altar in the Abbey are inscribed the words, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Words from Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, and of course set to music by George Frederick Handel in The Messiah. And it's a reminder to every monarch crowned there, including next year Charles III, that they are answerable to another power. What does this mean, Christ the King? Yes, the day is coming when all shall be set right and all be made anew. But now, what does the rule of Christ look like now? We might be tempted to think it's about the power of the church, ruling the moral life of the nation, declaring what sin is and seeking to effect a change. It could look like the kind of influence that the hardline Brexiteers exercised in the Conservative Party, wanting their own way at all costs. A kind of religious throwing your weight around. Uh, many want the church to do that and act in that way by political power ensuring the reign of Christ is implemented now. <laughs> Others wish to see it as something that will come in the future. Christ will be king one day when all is changed and set right, but for now we just muddle through, competing in the cut and thrust of ideologies and religious worldviews. And in our secular Western world, that looks very much like a kind of defeat. But when I was in Westminster Abbey those years ago, I was there to remember Oscar Romero. Born in 1917 in El Salvador, he trained for the Catholic priesthood and was ordained in 1942. He was bookish, shy, and a zealous pastor of his parish. In 1970, he was made bishop, and in 1977, to the shock of many, he was appointed Archbishop of San Salvador. There followed three tumultuous years of ministry in his small country, ruled by a despotic and vicious military dictatorship. 
He spoke out against the violence of the military, the disappearances, the political imprisonments and the wholesale repression of the poor in order to maintain the power of the rich elite. He preached a message of non-violence, of social justice, of peace and reconciliation, and it brought him to the attention of the world. Week by week, from his cathedral pulpit, he confronted human rights abuses, the power of the landlords who held sway, and the government that oppressed the poor. Six priests had been killed before he was, and bumper stickers began to appear on the back of cars that said, be a patriot, kill a priest. He knew he was liable to be assassinated, but that only inspired him to greater courage in his denunciation of corruption and violence. And on the 24th of March in 1980, he was shot dead as he celebrated mass in the hospital chapel in San Salvador. His funeral took place 42 years ago, this year, but was never finished as smoke bombs were thrown into the massed crowd of mourners, killing a further 40 people in the ensuing shootings. Romero's statue stands on the west front of Westminster Abbey, a reminder of this pastor to the poor and spokesman for the voiceless. And our reading from Colossians 1 is a hymn to the Lord whom Romero and we follow, worship and adore. Probably, Paul has edited an earlier hymn. It's as if he's saying, you sing it, now believe it. But he's probably adapted it to his purposes in challenging the false teaching that is rife in the church in Colossae. He could have been the original author, of course. We just don't know. What matters in this glorious depiction of the cosmic Christ is that it reminds us that our picture of Christ is often far too small. And a Christ who is reduced to our dimensions cannot help us to be strong in the face of challenges and despair. The first verse from our reading, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience. This Christ is the icon of the invisible God. God takes a human face in Jesus and he's preeminent in creation. This little word, firstborn, prototokos, might at first reading suggest that Christ is the first of God's creatures and lead us towards the heresy that the one who takes bodily form in Jesus of Nazareth is God's first creation and does not fully share the divinity of the Father. That is the heresy of Gnosticism already taking shape in Colossae as Paul writes. But the meaning of the word really refers to the status that the firstborn had in ancient societies. The one who would become the head of the family. 
still exists in whoever gets to be the next monarch. Whoever gets born first inherits it all. They won't do a weekly or a monthly share between the three Charles, Anne and Edward. I don't think Andrew would have a look in. He exists with the Father, the one who creates all things from eternity and is the agent through which everything comes into being. Sharing in that outpouring of divine love that moves God to create a universe. He himself is before all things. In verse 17 is what Paul writes. And it's given poetic form in that Graham Kendrick song, which some of you may know. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Not only is the, he the agent of God's creative purposes, he thereafter sustains all things, holding together the very forces of creation. I like to think of it as the strong and weak nuclear forces that hold the atom together and gravity that keeps everything in place and the mysterious dark matter that seems to fill the universe as cosmologists tell us all things are sustained by him in some mysterious way and the second great theme of this hymn is Christ's redemptive power he's the head of the body the church the community of the redeemed and the new humanity of which he is the firstborn from the dead. That's the word firstborn again. So he is supreme in creative power and supreme in redeeming love and resurrection life. Doesn't that lift your heart this morning? That redeeming work is not limited to some narrow personal salvation. Just your and my ticket to eternal life if we happen to put our faith in Jesus. That gospel has all too often been reduced to that narrow view. No, the one who has first place in everything is in the business of reconciling to himself, of bringing back into order and goodness all things, everything, everything. Note we've encountered that little word, all things, before in this hymn. In him, all things were created, verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him, also verse 16. He is before all things, verse 17. And verse 17 again, in him, all things hold together. He has first place in all things. Verse 18, there's nothing beyond the reach of his sustaining and redeeming power and love, certainly not our petty empires on planet Earth. And now here comes the rub. The way in which all of this redeeming and restoring work and power is accomplished is not through raw exercise of power, the divine equivalent of shock and awe or military might, but through making peace, through his blood, his death on a cross. 
God's way is unavoidably cross-shaped. And the fact that at the end of this church's calendar on this Sunday, in a week's time we announce the, the beginnings of the story again of the Advent story, begin to prepare to welcome a helpless newborn baby laid in a feeding trough reminds us that God's power looks very much like human frailty. There is nothing quite as vulnerable as a newborn baby, except perhaps a man hanging on a cross. Our Old Testament reading foretells the coming into Jerusalem of Jesus, fated as a king on Palm Sunday, turning within days to the cries, crucify him, as he dies the shameful and agonizing death of crucifixion. So I wonder, I wonder if the rule of Christ looks rather like the courageous archbishop calling out corruption and denouncing the abuse of power. Whether the rule of Christ looks very much like a crucified king on a throne of wood wearing a crown of thorns, and it looks very much like a faithful following of the Spirit's leading and empowering in the way of divine love, rather than the worldly influence and power of a brute kind. So when we say Christ is King at the end of this church's year, on this day of feasting of Christ the King, we dare not imagine that it will look like anything like any other king or human despot. I suspect that the rule of the King of all, Jesus Christ, looks rather like a child crying in a manger, helpless, or a man hanging on a cross, broken. Yet in both images, one thing shines through, the extraordinary love of God that bears all things and transforms all things. And when we act in those ways and follow the way of that kind of lordship and rule, then the reign of Christ does become present in our world in the midst of its brokenness and violence and self-destruction. And if the Feast of Christ the King celebrates this story today, then I'm glad that on this, the last Sunday of the church's year, we can sound the note of the Christ-like and crucified reign of God afresh. Here in central London, wherever you've come from, wherever your home is, to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the ages, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for bringing us together as a community, whether online or in person, to worship you, to cling to you for comfort and to think on how we can believe a better world into being. We thank you that even in the midst of global and personal turmoil, 
we are able to find comfort, counsel, and companionship in your house with your people. We pray for strength and selflessness as we are interdependent and find ourselves supporting others even as we need support. We pray for all those who are grieving as you deal with both personal and societal loss as we enter a period of what is likely to be a prolonged recession. We pray for those who are still reeling from the sustained crises of pandemic, austerity, state violence, and marginalization that have been unrelenting. We pray for all those numerous workers who are expressing their exhaustion in going on strike, particularly the nurses and carers amongst us. We pray for unpaid carers, parents, community workers, good neighbors, and all those people performing unpaid and unrecognized labor that our society could not function without. We pray, we pray for a fair and just solution to their struggles that recognizes the dignity of their work. We pray for all those suffering the effects of inflation and the cost of living crisis. We live in terrifying times. There are far too many people in this country for whom precarity and poverty have been made normal. And we pray against the selfishness that has allowed many of us to remain insensitive to the needs of our neighbors for far too many years. We pray that these times will not drive us to despair, but rather that God will grant us a spirit of action. Led by Jesus' example, we will join hands with those around us to support each other through these next few years and hold our leaders accountable. God of all the world, give us wisdom in troubled times. Use our doubts to comfort us. Even in times like these, Jesus grants us glimpses of what a godly society could look like. We pray that God will help us believe in the possibility of heaven on earth, and that when we experience these difficulties, we will not retreat into individualism, but rather cleave close to God. Jesus lovingly holds his arms wide and welcomes us with our doubt, our shame, and all of our worry into his peace. And I pray that we will take him up on his offer. In Jesus' name, amen. May Jesus Christ, your King and Redeemer, give you power to serve. May the Holy Spirit, your sustainer, give you power to love. May God, your creator, give you the power to forgive and to know forgiveness. May the almighty God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer be with us all evermore. Amen. <laughs>